PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Our payment incentives are frequently not aligned with care that's evidence-based. Our guidelines are very extensive, and it might help if they were a little less extensive and a little more comprehensive and comprehensible. Decrease the inappropriate variation in terms of care that we're delivering. Just decrease the variation of it. Welcome to this PTJ Discussion Podcast, Adherence to Clinical Practice Guidelines for Low Back Pain in Physical Therapy. Do patients benefit? PTJ editorial board member Dr. Christopher Marr moderates this far-reaching discussion based on a paper published in the August 2010 issue of PTJ. Lead author Gert Ritten discusses his work with further analysis by Dr. Julie Fritz and Dr. Gerard Brennan. And now our moderator, Chris Marr. Welcome to the PTJ podcast entitled Adherence to Clinical Practice Guidelines for Low Back Pain and Physical Therapy. Do patients benefit? The idea for today's podcast arose from a paper in the August 2010 issue of PTJ by Gert Rutten and colleagues. This cohort study measured the care provided by physical therapists and the outcomes their patients achieved. The care was mapped to that endorsed in clinical practice guidelines and this allowed the authors to test whether adherence to guidelines was associated with better outcomes. The authors concluded that this was indeed the case with higher adherence associated with better functioning and fewer treatments. I really enjoyed the paper and thought the issues it raised would be perfect for a podcast. We have with us here today the lead author of the trial, Mr. Gert Rutten. Gert is a research fellow at the Department of Health Promotion at Maastricht University, the Netherlands. He is in the final stages of his PhD. He is also a practicing physiotherapist at PhysioMatWork, a practice network in the south of the Netherlands. Yeah, hi Chris, it's an honor to be invited for this discussion. Thank you for joining us. We also have Associate Professor Julie Fritz with us to discuss the issue. Julie is currently an Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Utah. She's also the Clinical Outcomes Research Scientist with Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, Utah. Julie's research interests have focused on examining treatments for individuals with low back pain, matching the most effective treatments to various subgroups of patients, and examining the outcomes of translation decision-making strategies into physical therapy practice. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Our final speaker is Dr. Gerard Brennan. Gerard is the Director of Clinical Quality and Outcomes Research for Intermountain Healthcare Physical Therapy in Salt Lake City, Utah. Gerard has practiced for 35 years and continues to treat patients in an outpatient primary care clinic. He maintains an active clinical research agenda in the area of orthopedics, classification of patients with low back pain, spinal manipulation, quality improvement, and treatment effectiveness studies. He has served as the APTA's Research Section Program Chair and Vice President for the past seven years. Welcome, Gerard. Thank you very much, Dr. Mara. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. So if we start the discussion, Gert, for the sake of background, what drew you to this research topic and why do you think it is important to evaluate adherence with guidelines? Well, in 2000 or 2001, the practicing physiotherapists in the Netherlands, including myself, were confronted, uh, and I deliberately used the word confronted with guidelines, telling us what to do and what not to do anymore. And I recognized a lot of resistance among colleagues, and it was at least partly due to the way they were disseminated. 
It was a very active approach for the mailman, uh, who had to deliver about 19,000 of these guidelines. The guidelines were recommendations that were not in line with the way that physiotherapists were working at that time. So they had to change their way of working, and most of them didn't like that. So we're in the Netherlands at the moment, Gerd. How many evidence-based practice guidelines would be there for physical therapy? Uh, about 18. Has there been a formal program to implement the guidelines? Well, it started very passively, just sending them to the physiotherapists, and there has been some research to improve guideline implementation strategies. So they're trying to change to a more active approach. When you talk about an active approach rather than just posting out the guidelines, yeah. what do you yeah. actually mean by an active approach? In our profession, we have these small deliberation groups all through the country, and what they are doing now is intercollegial deliberation about guidelines. We performed a recent study. That study showed that we should actively intervene on more levels. It's not enough just to wait and see what physical therapists do. You have to educate them. Okay, thank you, Gert. Julie, you've been involved in a lot of work developing treatment-based subgroups that allow therapists to individualize treatments. But at first glance, guidelines seem to endorse generic care. Can treatment algorithms and guidelines live together? Well, I think so. In our view, I think we view them as having a lot of synergy, and I think Gert's paper is a good example of the potential for that. So the guidelines that he's looked at, that we've looked at, others have looked at, we view as sort of a first layer of decision-making, and I think that's what guidelines really endeavor to do, is to begin at that level and give us some ideas about things that we should do and equally important things that we shouldn't do across the board for people with back pain. The idea of individualizing treatment to patients then comes as a layer of decision-making underneath that, and the question becomes, can we gain any more benefit in improving outcomes if we put more detail into some of the guidelines that Gertz outlined about examining patients in agreement with the patient profile. So I would see some of the additional work that we've done as trying to drill some detail into a recommendation like that and provide an additional layer of decision-making assistance to try to improve outcomes. The real question is how many layers of that do you go through to actually benefit the patient and at what cost in terms of sometimes financial cost as well as the effort it takes from physical therapists. Okay, thank you. So if we accept that following evidence-based treatment guidelines is desirable and just passively mailing them out to people is probably not the best way to go, what can we do to get people following clinical practice guidelines? Gerard, what do you think about that issue? Well, you know, Grimshaw in Canada has written quite a bit on this subject, and our own experience has been important in terms of, at least to us, in terms of figuring out how do you get people to change their practice behavior, and that's difficult. I think all the different methodologies that you can think of probably have some effect from just mailing out the guidelines to actually sending clinical experts into the clinic place, following up with supportive educational materials. But there has to be a rationale that's shared by the therapists, the providers. I think there needs to be a consensus on what the conceptual framework is as to how we're approaching treatment, why we're doing it, and that it's based on evidence that the clinicians can believe is detailed and justified. 
And then it's a matter of going back, auditing, looking, collecting outcomes in a consistent manner, and demonstrating that we're in compliance, there's adherence, we're actually doing this. The correct decisions are being made, the actual care is being delivered. That's just an ongoing daily process that has to happen. And it's tedious and it's wearing. And oftentimes it's frustrating because it's difficult to achieve good performance on a regular basis. Okay, thank you for that. Gerd, I'm going to ask you a question now, which sort of moves beyond the physical therapist. Is there any move within the Netherlands to look at developing evidence-based guidelines for consumers of physical therapy services, such as, for example, the patient who might pay for the service or some sort of insurance facility who might be a third-party payer for physical therapy services? Do we have any resources for those groups of people? Well, not really. We did try to do a thing like that. We produced a patient leaflet, uh, which in very simple language explains what physiotherapy care, according to guideline recommendations for low back pain, would mean. So it's about influencing patient expectations when they enter the practice. I think that could help. The problem is that the physiotherapist had these leaflets and didn't use it. We asked them afterwards, why didn't you use it? Well, they were very positive about the leaflet, but just forgot to use it. And um, so I think it's absolutely a possibility to inform patients about the process of care and make them ask for it when they enter a physiotherapy practice. Okay. Thank you for that. With Gert's study, we found an association, but the design he used prevents us making inferences of causation. Do you have any ideas for designs that allow stronger inferences about causation? Well, there's certainly some additional challenges with this type of research that complicates that question, and it really comes from the impossibility of doing what we traditionally do when we want to look at causation, which is randomize patients to different management strategies and comparing the results. In this sort of situation, it's difficult to randomize individual patients and then send them to clinicians and ask clinicians to deliver guideline-based care for one patient and then some alternative care for a different patient. That type of design really doesn't work here. The same sort of problem occurs when you think about randomizing different therapists within a practice and you worry about the contamination of having a therapist operating under different treatment paradigms within the same clinic, and that just really doesn't seem to work either. So it it brings you to really needing to randomize practices, and that's certainly possible. There's certainly studies described and conducted that have used that, but it raises some additional challenges. Chris, um, I'm if I can jump to... in here, this is Gerard. I I think that this type of research, it doesn't lend itself towards randomized trial and even the concept of causation. That's not the important issue here. And we can really get further down the road by doing these cohort types of design, putting in place methodologies in terms of care delivery that are consistent and track those outcomes over time and really get to the observations, hopefully, that will help us depict what type of care when delivered on a consistent basis has better functional disability types of outcomes, pain types of outcomes, than just getting all tied up in a randomized trial where we have exclusions and inclusions and we lose generalizability. Causation really, in my mind, is not the issue of paramount importance. 
I'm interested in your point, Gerard, about maybe we have emphasised randomised control trials too much because I think that leads on to my next question about comparative effectiveness research because certainly the agenda that's been suggested by the US government has suggested there are other forms of research other than randomised control trials which may be useful in that area. So just to get the listeners up to speed, can you give us a brief overview of what comparative effectiveness research is? Yeah, I can give my perspective. In the last, I don't know, decade here or so, this has certainly become a much bigger emphasis here in the United States, motivated, I think, primarily by the really skyrocketing costs that we have in our healthcare system. And a lot of research that's been produced that's documented some really unsettling variation in care across our country in ways that don't make sense based on the evidence, as well as a couple of really influential papers that documented that basic evidence-based quality indicators weren't getting delivered at a consistent rate for very common conditions and that this was very likely to have a profound impact on people's health. So this sort of information, I think, reached a point where the government became very much interested in trying to motivate research that really looked at alternative management strategies and did a better job of looking at the costs and the risks and the harms as well as the outcomes of different types of care. And and that's really become a larger focus than it had been previously in our healthcare system and our funding agencies. And it's represented a bit of a shift in where a lot of our biomedical research has been focused here in the United States. You know, in my mind, the challenge in physical therapy comes down to demonstrating value and examining the delivery of physical therapy care in the context of reimbursement because when there's a limit to how much is going to be spent, then the questions become, well, what's the right thing to do? How do we get the best outcome for what we spend? In the years I've been a physical therapist, it's really been the type of profession that is just like, oh, physical therapy is a good thing, but no one's ever measured why it's good or how it's good. And so demonstrating that value so that we know what happens for a clinical condition, whether it's back pain or a total joint implant, what happens when we involve appropriate physical therapy care and obtain an outcome compared to when that care is not in place as part of all the disciplines of care being involved in that patient's outcome. I guess the issue that I find intriguing is that If you look at the area of back pain, we've got lots of effectiveness studies in terms of clinical trials, but there are very few cost-effectiveness studies. And the other thing that I find intriguing is that most of the cost-effectiveness studies in back pain have come from Europe or the United Kingdom. There's virtually no research activity in terms of cost-effectiveness in the United States, which seems to me a little bit odd given the nature of healthcare in that country. I don't understand that. What's happening there? (laughs) My sense is, go ahead, Julie. I think we're going to say similar things. Go ahead, Gerard. Well, my sense is in the United States, it's been kind of this free enterprise. The more you do, the more you make. It's just like operating any other type of business. It hasn't been done with this sense of there's a limit as to what's available in the budget. In these other countries that you gave as examples, there are limits, and when the money is coming from the government, there's a limit, and people have to demonstrate that when they're involved, it makes a difference. 
similar to Gerard, I think we've had a perspective change within our system that what we've been doing traditionally is not sustainable. And from a funding perspective, that's also begun to change, that there's more motivation now, particularly at the federal level, to value that type of research. And I'm not sure that's always been there. Previously, there's been more of a focus on technology and innovation in more of that sense. So there's definitely been a change. But your perception, I certainly agree with it. I, too, find it interesting and a bit odd that those studies uniformly haven't been done in the United States. So hopefully we'll start to see more of an emphasis placed on that here. Okay. And to get back to the Netherlands, is there any push in the Netherlands for something similar to this comparative effectiveness research that we've seen recently in the United States? That is very limited. Uh, In our system, the patient is budgeted. They have a budget for physical therapy for every year. And when they went through their budget, well, they can pay for themselves or not, or they stop therapy. So for the patient, it would be very interesting to know about cost-effectiveness and for policymakers, of course, also. But research in that area is very limited, although there's a lot of thought about it because it's a hot topic at this moment. And what I'd like to see for myself in studies is we don't know which steps in the process are most important for the results. We'd like to get a better view on that because our guidelines are very extensive and it might help if they were a little less extensive and a little more comprehensive and comprehensible. So they might be used better then and I would like to know more about that. Okay, so what I'd like to do is to bring it back to the paper. It seems to me all around the world and across all sorts of different professions, we have this same problem in that we find that clinicians are not following guidelines to the level that we'd like. What is it that we're missing? What should we be doing differently to what we're currently doing? Maybe we should start with GET. Um, I think we surely have to consider in what form we are going to bring the evidence into practice and I refer to the format of the guidelines. Are we still developing total guidelines or are we going to use evidence statements or sort of living guidelines so every time there's new evidence you can easily change them? So they will always be up to date and now it mostly is about five years. Every guideline is reviewed every five years so at the time they are coming out they are not recent anymore. We still have a very limited view on the implementation problem, I think. There's a lot of research necessary to get a better insight in that. And I think we should focus on the management, especially the interaction between management or higher policy levels and individual physiotherapists and patients. So I think that's what we should do in coming years. Okay. And Julie, what would you offer? Well, I guess the one thing I would add, and it may be a bigger issue here in the United States, but we really struggle with the reality that our payment incentives are frequently not aligned with care that's evidence-based. There's a conflict that clinicians are presented with between the payment structures and what kind of care is incentivized there and a desire to practice in an evidence-based manner. And it would certainly help efforts to change practice if the financial incentives were lined up with providing higher quality care based on the evidence and guidelines. Okay, thank you. Gerard, what would you offer? My short answer to this would be that in order to improve care, what we need to do is decrease the inappropriate variation in terms of care that we're delivering. Just decrease the variation of it and to consistently track outcomes. The problem that we have, I think, is that for any given condition, a patient could walk into five different offices or the same office with three or four different therapists and get completely different treatment for a given clinical condition. 
I would even propose that if therapists are, even if they're doing the wrong thing that's not recommended by guidelines, just do it consistently and track the outcomes. Even when they're delivering the wrong types of care, at least if they're doing it consistent, I think it opens up the opportunity to at least work with them and change their behavior. But we have to decrease the inappropriate variation that's going on, and people need to consistently track their outcomes in treatment. Okay. Yeah, and I think the other thing that, that we talk a lot about in that area is it's having a defined care process because we certainly have a lot of therapists who do the same yeah. thing for every person with low back pain, whether it seems to make sense for that person's presentation or not. What seems to be lacking is a thoughtful paradigm of decision-making that that person can articulate and say, here's where this decision is coming from and why I chose this instead of that. For an individual therapist, if there's a process, even if it's a misinformed process, but they're going through that process consistently, that's a person who seems much more open and accepting of saying, let's alter that process with some additional information. Isn't it true that this brings us right back to the implementation problem? Yes, absolutely. Because guidelines are also meant to get some of the variation of care out of the physiotherapy world. So if we try to get some more uniformity, that is the implementation problem, one of the implementation problems, I think. Well, I'd like to thank each of you for contributing to our discussion today. I've learned quite a lot, and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. I think we would all agree that adherence to clinical practice guidelines is desirable in physical therapy, but really the challenge is how do we ensure that that occurs? I think we've probably had a generation of research activity where people have produced randomized controlled trials and people have produced guidelines, but the thing that we haven't actually paid sufficient attention to is implementation, and that's really a challenge, but I think it's a challenge that physical therapists can address in the next decade. I'm looking forward to the research and professional activities where people do look at what is the best way to implement clinical practice guidelines in physical therapy. I'd like to thank you for your contribution to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. It was enjoyable. Thanks for listening. Please send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thank you.